It's the left versus the right in the right corner. Roger Stone in the left corner. It's Anthony Weiner. Now to the Bernard McGurk Studios. It's a 77 WABC debate. It's the grapple in the Big Apple. So welcome to Left versus Right. I'm Anthony Weiner, and every week for the last few weeks, we've taken a little bit of a different direction with the show, treated it more like one of those old-fashioned debate shows. It happened quite, I guess you can say coincidentally, Curtis Lee wasn't feeling well, and the boss, John Katsimatidis, came in, and we had a nice back and forth. And in honor of the 2024 election year, we're going to be doing more of that on 77 WABC. And so Curtis came in last week, and they said, wait a minute, we need to start upping our game. I think it's because I was starting to do a little better in these debates. And so today, representing the right, it's Roger Stone, the host of the Roger Stone Show that you hear every week, 4 to 6 on Sundays, also can be reached on StoneZone.com. Welcome, Roger. Anthony, I'm uh, delighted to be here. I kind of feel like I'm on the old crossfire, you know? Yeah, it's uh, you know, it's funny. They, you know, I did a little segment of this on one of my podcasts. I guess all of this started, you know the history better than I. I guess it started in 1968 during the debates then when Gore Vidal and William F. Buckley would have these high-minded debates, but they were really nasty. I don't think this one is going to get to that. No, but I'm glad you're bringing it back. I think people like to hear it, uh, and, you know, we keep it on the issues. Uh, there's so much to talk about. We had a great list here, but try to jam it all in, uh, it's really hard. There's this a lot was of important stuff going on. For sure, Roger. This was a crazy week. So let's go ahead and get it started with some of the, the news of the week coming out of Washington. And let's start here. Um, we'll go kind of in reverse chronological order. Mayorkas, the head of DHS, uh, was brought up by, the, uh, by Congress, makes it to the floor of Congress to be impeached under the constitutional provisions. And quite to the surprise of just about everyone involved, the impeachment of Mayorkas goes down on basically virtually a tie vote. A very close Congress could not agree to impeach him. So let me ask you this, Roger Stone, was it a mistake to bring it up in the first place? And how much of this is an embarrassment for Speaker Johnson? Uh, well, you may find this uh, surprising. I'm not, uh, I'm a Republican, certainly, but I'm not a knee-jerk Republican. And I honestly, as much as I disagree with Secretary Mayorkas, as much as I think he's actually incompetent, as much as I may think he's not doing a good job or disagree with his policies, I actually don't think any of those things rise to the level of impeachment. So I assume the House Republicans were looking for some act of symbolism here. On the other hand, you used to be in the House. you got to be able to count votes, right? And it looks to me like somebody didn't know how to count votes. So if I were the Republicans, I would not have done this. I think it actually distracted from a more important debate about actual policy at the border and what needs to be done. But, you know, the, the, the thing that I don't understand is, you know, Nancy Pelosi had some very close margins as well. The Republicans have a close margin here. There is hard to find in the history of our country a less productive Congress than this House of Representatives has been. You know, you got to wonder, have Republicans shown an inability to govern? Look, it's a divided country. It's a divided Washington. you got to be able to work with the other side of the aisle at least a little bit. And the Republicans have been unable to even do that when called upon by the highest interest that they have, like fixing immigration laws or you know, passing budgets. Let me ask you this. If you were Speaker if you were Speaker Johnson, 
Would you be able to say that your record is any better than Kevin McCarthy's at this point? Well, first of all, I think this may be because we have more diversity in our caucus than Nancy Pelosi had. You see, there are no conservative Democrats anymore. I'm not even sure there are any moderate Democrats anymore. We do still have some diversity in our party. Uh, secondarily, uh, it's pretty clear to me that if you want to consider uh, more money for Israel, which I do, uh, if you want to consider more money for the war in Ukraine, which I would be opposed to, uh, you shouldn't put them in an immigration bill. You should do these as individual bills, just as we should stop continuing to pass continuing resolutions and actually deal with the budget. So I think, uh, in all honesty, the jury's still out. Uh, I want to like uh, S uh, Speaker Johnson, uh, but so far I haven't seen what I have looked for. But, you know, it's funny that you point out that these are all together. You know why they're together, why immigration got added to this package. And that is because the insistence of the Republicans saying we won't pass aid to Israel or aid to Ukraine or aid to Taiwan unless this immigration thing gets, le gets le legislated. And maybe this is a good stepping off point for the second issue, which is, as you talk, and I agree with you, the substance of lawmaking is what we look to Congress for. So let's look for a moment at the second big embarrassment of this tough week, which was that after the Republicans made this demand that said add immigration to any package that includes helping our allies, they appoint someone, they appoint this guy Langford, they say go negotiate, and then before the bill even comes out, people are declaring it dead on arrival. What is going on with your party here in immigration? Do they want to fix the problem or not? Well, first of all, I, I guess I don't think that Senator Lankford is typical uh, of the party or even typical of the majority of Senate Republicans. And the real problem here is that what he came back with is not a border reform bill, uh, a bill that allows 5,000 illegals in the country per day. That's 155,000 a month. That's 1.8 million a year. Uh, th that's not a border security bill. That's a, an open border bill. That would have, by the way, tied the next president, whoever that is, to uh, allowing that. And then the $22 million in the bill that's immigration related is really for, in for processing of those people. Uh, so th it's a misnomer to call this uh, uh, a uh, an immigration reform bill. And then uh, I must tell you, adding or connecting it to funding for Ukraine and Israel, which that starts in the House, pardon me, in the Senate, not in the House. It, it's it's a bad idea. Well, that was the demand of the Republicans. And let me just look. We, we, we do facts here on the show. The bill does not require 5,000 undocumented to get in. All it talks about is how many encounters that you have before you trigger these new powers that the president would have. Look, I think that... Yeah, and, and I argue it's the same thing. So well, everybody no, no, sees facts differently. No, something, know? no, this is not a question of interpretation. Just the same way that Title 42 triggered a presidential power, this law would change something that Donald Trump never had, could never get, and that is the ability to limit people coming here and requesting asylum. Look, the Wall Street Journal put it best. They said, do Republicans want to better secure the U.S. border or do they want to keep its open, festering border another year as an election issue? What is your vote on that question? You're, you're obfuscating the issue. We do not need a new law. We just need to enforce the laws that are on the books now. Well, Roger Stone, let me ask you a question. Did Donald Trump have the right to deny people uh, the right to stay here lawfully if they asked for asylum? Did, did, uh, did Donald uh, Trump have that right? 
I believe I believe that he did. Anyway, you slice it, border crossings trickled well, off hold to on, almost hold nothing but, in the last year of the of the Trump presidency. I know, but be, before we move off this question, whether you need a new law, Donald Trump did need a new law because he tried to do that and was stopped by the courts. So when you say that no new laws are necessary, the overwhelming number of people coming in are requesting asylum, which the present law allows them to do. That law needs to get fixed. Surely you know that. The stay in Mexico law that was, uh, that was passed and was in place but was basically canceled by Joe Biden would have done the job. Well, stay in Mexico is not a law. A policy. Well, that same policy requires agreement by Mexico, and, 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 and they no longer agree to that. But let's focus on asylum. You say that the asylum laws don't need to be changed, that, that Joe Biden has the power. But you also say that Donald Trump did not have the power because we know that because the court stopped him from doing it, and several hundred thousand came in under Trump. So we do need a law. We got 10 million additional illegals under Joe Biden somehow. So to say this is the fault of Donald Trump or the Republicans, I think that would be fundamentally dishonest. Well, here's what we're trying to do here. We're trying to answer this fundamental question, which is, do Republicans want to fix the border or do they want to keep it as an issue in the election year? Now, Donald Trump has made it very clear he wants the latter. And I think most Americans want the former. They want Congress to fix the problem. And right now we have a situation. Any living human being that is in our country, however they got there, when they stand up and says, I request asylum, according to the law and according to the courts, they can do that. That's why hundreds of thousands of people came in under this program under Donald Trump. It needs to get fixed. Uh, unrealistic to give them a court date for which they never show up and they're, and they're loose uh, in the country. And you see the manifestation of this in New York City today. These people came from someplace. Uh, Mayor Adams has said that this is going to destroy the city. The, the, his finances are breaking uh, at, at the seams. So uh, I think the larger question here is, was this border bill going to fix the problem? I would argue that it would not have. Well, let's assume for a moment that this border bill had passed and you wanted to, to lock up somebody for coming in without documentation. This bill would have increased the number of detention facilities. This bill had nothing for Democrats in it, for example. It has no amnesty, no legalization of anyone already here, no path to citizenship. All it did was shut down, basically gave the Republicans everything that they wanted. I, I wonder about this, this question, and, and, and you are one of the, the, the smartest political guys on your side of the aisle. You help make presidents. You talk about it all the time on your show on 4 to 6 on Sunday, the Roger Stone Show. You talk about it on your website, thestonezone.com. But I wonder, do you think the American people, kind of those swing voters in the middle that just want government to do something, do you think they're going to reward Biden or Trump for this breakdown in, 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 in this lawmaking that we saw this week? I think that ignores the, the actual on their lives. I mean, look, my sister's only son, my nephew, died of a fentanyl overdose two weeks ago at age 38. We have a fentanyl crisis in this country. We have a crime crisis in this country. It is directly attributable to the border policies of Joe Biden. So what they want uh, is a secure border uh, and less impact, both the fiscal impact on the cities like Boston and Chicago and New York City, uh, where we're talking about cutting sanitation, education, law enforcement, in order to pay for social services for people who are here uh, illegally. Uh, I think when it actually touches their lives, uh, they want a secure border. I think that's I think that's exactly right. But the question is, how do you solve that problem? The problem with fentanyl, uh, Joe Biden sent a bill to Washington, uh, to Capitol Hill, to increase the number of screening machines, increase the number of border officers, increase the number of, of judicial officials to adjudicate cases. And it wasn't even taken up. And then in this deal, 
in this deal, um, I, um, Border Patrol agents got an increase in their numbers, an increase of their tools, and the increase in their ability to turn people right around. The, 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 the Border Patrol Union, this notoriously Republican conservative union, came out and said this bill would improve things. So the question is, are the American people going to say, oh, I've got a problem, or are they going to say, well, at least Joe Biden and his party are trying to solve it? Uh, that, that sounds good, but on the Arizona-Mexico uh, border, we have 418 gates that are welded open uh, so some rare species uh, of antelope can come and go. Uh, let's be very clear. The Biden administration, Secretary Mayorkas, uh, the president's spokesman, were saying up until a few weeks ago that the border was secure. They kept insisting it was secure and that what we were seeing was a, a, a narrative created by Fox News. Well, if that's true... All these people that are in the shelters in New York City that Mayor Adams is struggling to deal with, where did they come from? Or in Boston or, or in Chicago. So uh, I think all that stuff, in all honesty, is window dressing. Well, there's no doubt, and you won't get any disagreement from me, and I talk about it every week, the immigration system is broken. But if you want more rules on who can come in, laws. If you want more money to go to do certain things, money from Congress. If you want to do stuff on these things, these policies, and by the way, you're a good person to ask. I ask this frequently. Can someone point to me the Donald Trump Immigration Reform Act of 2017 or 18 when he had both houses of Congress? I don't think it was necessary. I think if he if he would just enforce the or by enforcing the current laws, there it cannot be argued that there was not a substantial, very substantial drop in illegal crossings, I, I, pro proving that Biden could do it today if he wanted to. Well, I seem to remember something about migrant caravans. I, I, didn't you actually brand that yourself? That sounded like like the kind of language the Republican consultants would come in migrant caravans. I wish I could take credit for that one, but it's not one of mine. Right, but that that was what was going on in seventeen and eighteen. And by the way. 400,000 amnesty applications of people who are here now let in under, under Donald Trump, not because he wanted to, but because the court said there is a section of the law that describes how people apply for asylum. They did it under Trump. They're doing it under Biden. And until Congress comes in and acts and we start to get adult supervision, we are not going to have any luck whatsoever on dealing with this problem. Now, Maybe that's what Republicans want. Maybe they want to go to Mrs. Crapalucci on Avenue P and say, hey, this is Joe Biden's problem. Vote for Donald Trump. But I really think that that middle middle of the road voters who, you know, you know how this works, the, who, the people in Wisconsin, people in Pennsylvania who look up and, and say, who's trying to solve the problem and who's just getting in the way? I really think that they're going to rule in favor of the Democrats on this. Well, next time in, I'm in New York, we should probably have lunch and talk about this. But I'll tell you where we're not going. The Roosevelt Hotel. You get my point. Uh, I, 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 I oh, just I see. I, I see. You're, you're talking about, yes, there's no doubt about it. This is having a huge effect on, on folks here in New York and a lot of other places. But I will say this, though, you know, in terms of the, of the cost of immigration. You know, the, the Congressional Budget Office just came out with a report this week that pointed out how much more economic activity we have in this country when there are big waves of immigration. I got to tell you, we have jobs that are going wanting. You have states out in, in the middle of the country that are lowering their standards for, for, for kids to go work on the assembly lines because they can't find workers. It, we have always, Democrats and Republicans both, have always managed immigration by having smart updates to our immigration law. It's clear that's what we need again. Uh, actually, uh, we can get to this later in the program if you like, but I don't think we have enough jobs for Americans. If you look at the huge number of people leaving the job force who aren't therefore counted in these recent uh, job numbers, we don't have enough jobs for Americans. And there's a major shift towards counting part-time jobs 
as opposed to full-time jobs. We can get to that later. Well, I mean, listen, there there is if Republicans back, the Republicans that I knew and the ones that you cut your teeth with used to believe ultimately that there were things that Republicans wanted from the immigration laws. They wanted temporary workers for the agriculture sector, for example. They wanted visas for high-tech workers, for example. Nowadays, today's Republican Party, Roger Stone, seems to be all about denying the economic imperatives that built this country, which is this country, year, year after year, generation after generation, has thrived because we've updated our immigration laws. Now, I think you may be making the mistake of seeing things through the Republican-Democrat prism, which I, although I have a sentimental attachment to the party of Lincoln, I don't see everything that way. I actually think we have a uniparty, a, a, a political establishment, in which is kind of a go-along to get-along thing, and then we have a kind of a, an outside populist reform movement in the country. Party means less and less. You're telling, if you put me, for example, in the same basket with the Koch brothers, who very clearly want cheap foreign labor, no, they're they're not my kind of Republicans, that's for sure. Well, this is, is an interesting point to kind of wrap up our talk about immigration. Tell me a little bit about what your view is of the base of the Republican Party now. Is the base of the Republican Party one that basically, you know, you, you, you talked earlier in the program about the diversity of the Republican caucus, which made me laugh a little bit. I guess it's all different kinds of white men. But you, the, the, what it is the party... Is the party now an anti-immigrant party? Well, you're right. We don't have any pro, pro-Islamic terrorists uh, in, in our caucus. But uh, I think we have no longer the party of the country club. We're no longer the party of Wall Street. We have been the party of working Americans. We are the party that measures all public policy decisions through the prism of what is best for America, what puts America first, not not our allies, uh, not our friends, but what puts America first. Now, certainly there are instances where helping our friends and allies is in our best interest, but I think the I think the party has changed very dramatically and there's a huge dichotomy between the elite party leadership in Washington and in some states and the rank-and-file Republican primary and regular voter at the grassroots. Well, it does kind of seem, though, and not to lapse too much into just the pure partisan politics of it, but you raise an interesting point about how the party has changed. But this new version of the party is not very successful, is it? It, 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 After winning the presidency in 2016, promptly got swept in the legislative races in the House in 2018, lost in 2020 by 6 and 7 million votes, lost in 2022 despite a very favorable environment. Is this new version of the Republican Party can be branded best with the letter L? I think you're whistling past the graveyard, or maybe you haven't seen the the most recent polls. Uh, your candidate for president's trailing in every swing state and trailing nationally, and that's uh, despite the the tsunami of lawfare against the most obvious Republican nominee, Donald Trump. Politics, no, politics is always about the future, never about the past. There is there is no doubt about it. You would not want to have Joe Biden is, I think, perhaps the worst polling in a January election year than any president. And the last one who was this low was one Donald Trump who lost the election. So there is no, no doubt about it. Democrats should not be whistling at all. But the record is pretty clear. If this is the new version of the Republican Party, and it's the Donald Trump version of the Republican Party, they don't have too many wins that they can point to since it became that. And uh, so I think Republicans and Democrats both can point to elements of history that uh, are promising, but both can point to elements of history that are very troubling. And when we come back, first, I want to thank you for joining us. This is Left versus Right. For those of you who are tuning in a little late, Roger Stone representing the right. Don't say he represents the old Republican Party, just the right. 
and Anthony Weiner on the left. Roger Stone, for those of you who don't listen to his program, you can catch it every Sunday from 4 to 6. Also, you can catch up with everything he does on the Stone Zone. This is Left versus Right. Thanks for joining us. We'll be right back after the break. The left versus the right in the right corner. Roger Stone in the left corner. It's Anthony Weiner. It's the grapple in the Big Apple. 77 WABC. So welcome back to Left versus Right. Anthony Weiner on the left. Roger Stone on the right. You heard that, right? We'll be here until 5 o'clock. Curtis Leo may or may not be back next week. John Katsimatidis may or may not be back. This is part of a regular thing we're going to be doing where we try to highlight the issues that are going to be in play 2024. Old-fashioned debate style, and I want to thank Roger for doing this. Do tune into his program tomorrow at 4 o'clock. So we talked a little bit about the legislative branch of government in the first block of our program. Let's talk about the judicial branch. I don't think I've ever seen a circumstance where a candidate for office, Donald Trump, now facing 91 indictments. Um, But his cases, part of his strategy seems to be, and frankly part of the unprecedented nature of all of this, is the Supreme Court is spending a lot of time talking about Donald Trump. And this week we had two big pieces of news. Let's take them in order. First, the Court of Appeals said, no, Donald Trump, you are not immune from prosecution for crimes you committed in office. Roger Stone, do you think that was a correct decision? Uh, I, do, I do not, uh, because if you held that standard to all presidents, well, then, in all honesty, Barack Obama is going to get prosecuted for drone strikes on American citizens, just for, for one example, or for the illegal surveillance of his political opponents. So uh, I think that there is a standard there that needs to be maintained. Now, it is important to say that the D.C. Court of Appeals decision was not unexpected. It's uh, the most politicized left-leaning court in the country, probably. Uh, And uh, as you know, the special counsel, Mr. Smith, had hoped to leapfrog the appeals court and go right to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court did not want that. They wanted it to be heard in the appeals court, which it was. But this result uh, is not surprising. Well, it's also not surprising for another reason, that it's it's mind-bogglingly I guess the word would, would be unique in its, its structure. The idea that the president, a former president, remember this would be someone who have to be prosecuted after they leave office, could not be prosecuted by the judicial branch, the executive branch, or the legislative branch in any way for a crime that they committed. And, and the examples you used, okay, let's assume for a moment that those are crimes. So why wouldn't you want them to be held uh, uh, um, criminally responsible for those things? I mean, uh, the, 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 the idea... The idea can't possibly be that the president of the United States, who's in charge of the military, and this is the example that came up in the case, in charge of the military can send SEAL, SEAL, SEAL Team 6 out to shoot Anthony Weiner because he doesn't like him. That certainly can't be something that is above the law. Uh, I don't disagree. In fact, I think that, that uh, Trump's lawyer answered that question incorrectly. First of all, you don't any good lawyer doesn't answer hypothetical questions. But secondarily, that would not have been in the, within the scope of the president's responsibilities. So uh, it's an extreme example that I think, unfortunately, has kind of colored this entire discussion. But no, the truth is, I don't think any president can do his job if 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 Barack Obama made those decisions as president of the United States because he believed they were in the best interest of the country, then no, I don't think you should be retroactively prosecuted. 
prosecuted for them. Well, they have to be retroactively because we don't want people getting prosecuted when they're in office. So you're saying, and by the way, assigning SEAL Team 6 to do something is literally what the commander-in-chief does every day as part of his job. Uh, uh, no, not, not killing domestic political right, opponents. Right, because no. that would be a crime. Right. So how is he held responsible for it? For uh, but he wouldn't do that. It's a, it's, it, it's a straw man, and you know it. Well, wait a minute. He wouldn't do it, but the, 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 the argument that Donald Trump and his lawyers were making is that he should be allowed to, that there should be no liability for that. Once, and, as I, and as I just said, I really disagreed with uh, that assertion by Trump's lawyer. Right. I, I, I don't agree with it. I, but whether you agree with it or not, the, the, Supreme, the, the Supreme Court is now going to get this. They may or, may or may not rule on it, but it looks more and more likely that this novel approach to the law that Donald Trump was taking is going to get struck down, and he is going to have to face justice for the allegations of crimes that he committed while he was in office. But that brings us to the second one that was argued on Thursday that I think you and I probably agree won't get be well let, let's let's not jump ahead of it it was argued in the in the court that the 14th amendment section 3 that talks about conditions you just can't run for office under you can't run for office if you're not a citizen you can't run for office if you if you haven't been here a certain number of years you can't run for office if you're less than 35 that one of them is in the constitution under article section 3 of of the 14th amendment is that if you've taken an oath or you're an officer of the United States and you engage in insurrection, you can't be on the ballot. Colorado says that's what Trump did. What do you think is going to wind up happening in this case by way of prognostication? But also, do you think that Donald Trump should be prohibited from running for office? Uh, obviously, I do not because um, he hasn't been convicted of insurrection in any federal court. So it, you could, it might be your opinion uh, that he engaged in insurrection. Maybe that's the opinion of the non-lawyer Secretary of State in Colorado, but he has no conviction for that, number one. Number two, uh, it's pretty clear that the that Section 3 refers to officers uh, of the United States. There's a 1988, there's two different cases, one of them in 1988, that holds the president and the vice president are not, for purposes of law, considered officers. And then lastly, there's a pretty good argument that the the law, even if you were, I'm wrong about those other two points, uh, that it would not be self-executing, meaning the Congress would have to pass some subsequent law, essentially, uh, for the enactment of this. Uh, the whole thing is anti-democratic. Why do they fear an election? Why don't we just fight this out at the ballot box? Uh, I, I don't think anybody should be kept off the ballot. Uh, and that goes for the minor party candidates as well. So, for, so for example, when uh, when the Libertarian Party or the Green Party or Robert F. Kennedy uh, try to petition their way on the ballot, I think it's a mistake for the Republicans who haven't been doing this so far or the Democrats who basically announced they're going to do so to try to remove them from the ballot. I, I like the idea of letting the people decide. What if the people decide they want uh, another term of Barack Obama? Well, he, uh, he would be uh, constitutionally prohibited from running again under the Constitution. I think that's what we're talking about here. We're talking about a, a different section of the Constitution. What? Well, but this idea, that, though. I, but that one is pretty is more clear cut. But if you want to be if you want to be exact, then yes, this this as you know, written to deal with those who sided with the Confederacy. Uh, but Trump has no conviction for insurrection, so well, it, it wouldn't hold. Are, are you someone that... But, but, but mm -hmm. it is undisputable that Barack Obama served two terms as president. Well, here's, That's beyond dispute. Here, here, here's the thing about, the, uh, about this. You know, for those people who claim to be textualists, who claim to be originalists, who claim to read just what's in the Constitution, the word conviction doesn't appear. And in fact, if you looked at people who were the insurrectionists, 
many of them overwhelmingly were not tried in any court whatsoever. So there's certainly no argument that conviction, that didn't even come up at the arguments. Now, this idea that it's not self-executing, well, frankly, why would they put in there that Congress can reverse the disability? If they wanted Congress to put in the disqualification, they would have written that too. This is a real test. Look, I agree with you that the way to vanquish Donald Trump is to do it at the ballot box. He didn't get the popular vote in 16. He was squashed in 2020. Let him lose again to try to put an end to this. Let's do it that way. However, I got to tell you, the more I read, I read about this stuff, the more I agree with those Federalist Society guys who said that, that Donald Trump is, is not qualified to be on, on the ballot. Yeah, I obviously have a very take, uh, an obvious take on this. There would be no effort to remove him from the ballot uh, if Democrats were not afraid to face him uh, at the ballot box. Let's the, let's let the people decide to say, to say one has engaged in insurrection. According to whom? Whose judgment is that? It was that? a trial. There was a trial. But 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 uh, no, yeah, it, there was a trial. Trump was actually acquitted of insurrection. No, 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 in the no, no, no. There's a trial in Colorado. Uh, yeah, by a politicized Supreme Court that overruled two lower courts. No, he 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 had the opportunity to present any tri any evidence that he wanted. And by the way, an all Democrat court that's very political, appointed by a Democrat governor. Please the, let's not let's who, not pretend there's no politics. Who are the plaintiffs? The plaintiffs were a bunch of anti-Trump voters. Okay. It doesn't matter that they are technically Republicans. This is politics. So Anthony, you don't come like on. you don't like the plaintiffs. You don't like the judge. You don't like the evidence. You don't like the Constitution. Everything is politics. Sooner or later, you got to look to the words in the Constitution. And the words of the Constitution are pretty darn clear here. And by the way, all of this conversation, do they need to be convicted? How come you didn't mention the president? If you go back to the debate that was going on in the Senate at the time when the 14th Amendment was being written, all of these issues were brought up and dispensed with. Yes, obviously, the president, the vice president, um, this applies to. Yes, obviously, this is self-executing. Here's the problem. The problem is, I believe you and I are in agreement, Roger Stone that the Supreme Court is going to let Donald Trump remain on the ballot. But how they wiggle out from their so-called contextualist roots is going to be a fascinating thing to watch. I don't know how they're going to do it, to be honest. Uh, let's not ignore that a lot of states, uh, even at the, in their highest courts, have rejected this. Most recently, Massachusetts, uh, Michigan, and so on. So we've gone through the process. Look, we, this is easy. I, I don't think the Supreme Court uh, rules for the plaintiffs in this. I think they rule for Trump. And, when that happens, Anthony, you can call me. Well, that's probably going to happen. And so the Supreme Court heard that this week, and we're going to find out from that probably in the next month or so. And when we come back on Left versus Right, Anthony Weiner and Roger Stone, we'll move to some, some fascinating things going on overseas, and we'll see how that impacts the politics today. This is Left versus Right, Roger Stone on the right, me, Anthony Weiner, on the left, and we'll see you right after the break. It's the left versus the right in the right corner. Roger Stone in the left corner. It's Anthony Weiner. It's the grapple in the Big Apple. 77 WABC. So welcome back to Left versus Right. I'm Anthony Weiner on the left. Roger Stone. You heard that right. Roger Stone on the right. If you're just tuning in, this is part of a regular series that we're doing every Saturday at 4. Curtis Lewa is part of the team. John Katsimatidis, the owner of the station, is part of the team. And we're all doing these conversations in honor of the 2024 election season. If you miss any part of this, you can get it um, as a podcast on the Red Apple Podcast Network. That's also true of my show that you just heard, The Middle, and Roger's show, The Roger Stone Show, which comes on tomorrow. I encourage you all to listen to that. He has some great interviews. 
And um, any, uh, if you want to reach me, you can reach me on wienerwabc at gmail.com. Roger, do you have an email address you let uh, people, or, or through Roger's, or is it through stonezone.com? Uh, uh, right now it's stone at stonezone.com. I will shortly have my WABC uh, email address. Excellent. So it's kind of a related issue about the conversation about, um, about Ukraine and, and Russia. Tucker Carlson, who now has a show on Twitter X, is... Uh, visited with Putin, got an interview, has been feted all around Russia as kind of the, finally, the the U.S. media person that we can deal with, finally someone who's going to tell the truth about what's going on here. I don't know about you, Roger, but the whole thing has me very kind of feeling uncomfortable about giving kind of aid and comfort over there and, and kind of perpetuating propaganda. How does it feel to you? Uh, I don't agree with that, I guess, because I'm a I'm a free speech ab- absolutist. Uh, Zelensky certainly had well, you could call them interviews. I think they're more like kind of fawning, uh, uh, you know, sideshows. But he's had plenty of interviews. I'd like to hear how how Putin justifies what he's doing and justifies his positions. Uh, Tucker Carlson is guilty of practicing journalism. Uh, nobody objected when Oliver Stone introduced, uh, interviewed Vladimir Putin. Nobody in, uh, disagreed when Barbara Walters did so. So I, I, I just don't, I'm not afraid of words. I'd like to hear what the guy has to say. Yeah, I, I guess I'm not afraid of words either. And there's been no shortage of words. You know, Putin does this end of the year press conference when this one was like, I think, four and a half hours. He has said the words over and over again. But this is a president in Putin who is who takes Americans hostage. Evan Gershkovich of the Wall Street Journal has been there. I think it's 317 days held as a hostage. Um, this is also someone who has quite obviously not uh, um, d- doesn't have our interest at heart, but that's fine. I don't have as much problem with that. It's the idea of, you know, we have some history in this country of our journalists being used as propaganda tools for the enemy. I'm not saying there's a huge cost to the conversation. I, I think most people are smart enough to realize that both Tur- Tucker Carlson is a tool and Putin is a bad guy. I think we can figure that out. Um, but I do, I am concerned about just the responsibility of an American citizen to be concerned about the, 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 the basic rules of the game. I mean, for example, if Tucker Carlson went there and as part of this deal returned the American hostages, which may wind up happening, then I would say, okay, we're all in on it. You go there and give this guy a, um, a, a microphone and then we get our hostages back. But I don't even see that that's happening. It just seems like straight-up propaganda. But I'll give you the last word on this. Uh, Tucker Carlson's not a diplomat. He's a journalist. I don't think that he's a tool. Uh, I'd like to see the interview, but uh, I'm anxious to hear how Putin justifies what he's done. I want to hear what he has to say. Uh, It's information that I think Americans are entitled to. Uh, Listen, there is no worse criminal than Fidel Castro. My wife's family comes from Cuba. This guy is a brutal murderer, but nobody objected when Barbara Walters went and interviewed him. Nobody uh, had a problem when Oliver Stone interviewed him. So there are bad guys in the world, but hearing what they have to say and assessing it, I don't think that's a bad thing. Well, I said I was going to give you the last word, and I will stick to that. But I agree. I don't think it's the problem of the idea. The problem is that he won't subject himself to interviews with anyone else. And also, there is this sense. And I told you, I have got a vague sense of it. I'm, I'm kind of, I'm a free speech guy myself. I don't think that it's the end of the world. It is kind of a a peculiar place we find ourselves in, in American civic life and international affairs, 
that someone like Tucker Carlson, who has been all over the map ideology-wise, working for MSNBC, working for CNN, you got to give him credit. The guy certainly does get fired from a lot of places. But let's see what winds up happening with this interview and how it all works out. Uh, more disturbing to me is the fact that it appears this administration was monitoring his communications. Do they have a warrant for that? Do we monitor journalists? Uh, uh, the fact that he's, by the way, worked for outlets left, right, and center, I think is further proof that he's actually a journalist. Well, here's one thing I can say to you. If the Supreme Court has said that if he is being monitored by the President of the United States, and that's a crime, he'll be held liable. So we were talking a little bit in the first portion of the show we talked about the comings and goings around immigration. Then we talked about the Supreme Court, something that neither Roger and I will ever serve on the Supreme Court, and they remain an enduring mystery to most Americans. But let's look a little bit about the, the, the fairly chaotic world that we're living in overseas. And one of the things that Donald Trump and his supporters frequently say is things were kind of calm and peaceful and quiescent when he was president. That is certainly not the case today. Let's first look at the latest in the efforts to kind of by, by proxies of the Iranians, and that can be the Houthi rebels that were originally founded to try to disrupt the government in Yemen. It can be the more direct um, proxies that they have in Hezbollah in the north of Israel, and obviously the support that they provide to Hamas in, uh, in Gaza. So this week, after... Three of our troops were, were attacked and fatally lost in the north of Jordan. U.S. and British forces struck back and struck back pretty hard, struck back at, at command and control of the Houthis, struck back within Iraq against uh, Shia targets. And, um, and it frankly continues right up until, uh, until now. And so I ask you, Roger, is the response by the Biden administration, do you think it's proportional? Do you think it's correct? Would you like to see them do more or less? There seems to be a division in your party. Some people are like, let's not get involved in these foreign things as much. Some people say, let's be tougher. What, what do you think? Uh, I think the uh, airstrikes are a mistake. I, I think having 3,000 troops uh, on the border is a, a mistake. Uh, I, I said on my past show this Sunday, I had multiple sources telling me that our national security apparatus through the Qataris let the Iranians know when the strikes were coming and when they would be. They moved some of their key personnel out of uh, out of danger. So, look, uh, there's a more fundamental question. Why we would unfreeze $100 billion in assets for Iran, who I, I just think are bad actors, and not think that they're going to use that not only to restart their nuclear weapons program, but also to fund Hamas uh, and Hezbollah is just unrealistic. Why we would think that the $100 million we have given to Mahas for quote-unquote uh, humanitarian aid is going to be used for that purpose. I don't trust any of these entities. At the same time, we seem to be hamstringing uh, our traditional ally Israel in terms of uh, what they can and cannot do to defend themselves. I don't understand why we are on both sides uh, of the war. And I guess these airstrikes were designed to make the president uh, looks strong, uh, but I, I think we're getting closer and closer and closer uh, to World War III, and that's dangerous. Well, I, I think that that final sense sentiment, I think, is the argument for not letting these 
I don't know, these rogue agents that are supported by Iran be the straw that stirs the drink. First of all, it's $6 billion, not $100 billion, and it was South Korean funds that went as part of a deal to get back uh, our prisoners. It's, it's $100 billion according to the Wall Street Journal. I have the piece sitting in front of me. Well, you, uh, Un, you, you, unfroze, unfrozen assets. Yeah, the, the, the frozen assets that were, that were unfrozen were as, as, part of a, as part of a deal to get back our, our hostages. You can make an argument that was a bad idea. I have some concerns about it as well. I but mean, right there, you're right about an initial $6 billion, but then yeah. there's a subsequent So, argument. So, look, he, here I think is it's pretty clear that whether it be the Houthis, whether it be, frankly, only the Houthis, I mean, whether it be Hezbollah every once in a while lobbing a missile over, they've had now over 120 of them, but they have not, Nasrallah has not gotten Hezbollah involved in that war. Look, there is a sign that Iran does not want this thing to expand to their shores. Now, the question always is, do you hit Iran for something that one of their agents does? And if you're concerned about expanding this to World War III, as far as the Israelis are concerned, the last thing they want if you are a supporter of Eretz Yisrael, the last thing you want is this turning into something that includes not only a, 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 a problem in Gaza, not only a problem in the north against Hezbollah, not only a problem with the settlements in the west, but also a war in Iran. That's not good for the United States or for Israel. Wouldn't you agree? I, I do agree with that, but I would also point out to you that because of his policies, uh, Iran essentially was broke. They couldn't sell their oil because of the embargo put on them by Donald Trump. He had his foot on their throat. Joe Biden's let them up off the mat. Uh, it's, uh, I'm not an expert, but I do believe those who I have talked to tell me they're very close and now have the funding for, uh, to have a nuclear capability. Uh, that, to me, is uh, the gateway to, to World War III. Well, I want to tell you something. I mean, this is the argument. This is the argument for the Iran nuclear deal. That, yes, you're not going to make Iran, Iran a good people. You're not going to make them trouble-free. But you do achieve something that the Trump administration said that the Iran nuclear deal had achieved, which is stop them from getting a nuclear weapon. Can you imagine if they had a nuclear weapon right now? And as far as this whole Biden did this and Biden did that, look, here's what wound up happening. is Once we left the Iran nuclear deal, which China was in, and China began buying oil through Malaysia and buying Iranian oil, and, you know, that's, that's where this became a problem. You can't say we're going to have a sanctions regime and then walk away from that regime and not expect there to be problems. Uh, except for why would we actually believe the Iranians when you gave them the money? Not to mention the pallets of cash that weren't accounted for millions of dollars in the actual agreement that I assume were used for political payoffs. Why would we trust the Iranians to keep their word? We didn't give them any money. You keep saying that. No, this is money that other people were transferring that we were not subjecting to sanctions as part of a deal. Uh, uh, South uh, Korean money uh, that went through Qatar. Let's not get uh, carried uh, away. I, I, I'm talking about during the Obama administration. I'm not talking about these recent Hey, during the Obama administration, there was the Iran nuclear deal. And I just explained what the imperative of that was. When you're able to successfully negotiate to get the Chinese and the Russians to stand up against Iran, that's a deal that has something to be said for. Now, I've got my concerns about that deal as well. But you can't wonder, oh, my goodness, how did Iran get all this money when you tore up the sanctions deal that was preventing them from um, from getting access to the money. That's the problem. But yeah, I, I think, but, but tell me. What, what, sorry, I just did, what I just did was disagree with your interpretation of that, but move on. But let me, let me ask you where you think the Republican Party, well, better yet, you're someone that has a relationship with, with Donald Trump. Where do you think he is in this notion of, like he's been very critical of Bibi Netanyahu, very critically, he actually seemed like he revealed intelligence about Bibi Netanyahu saying that, that Bibi didn't want to hit Soleimani back when, when that was, was going on. 
Do you are you in the? Do you think that he is in this Lindsey Graham camp of of bomb 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 around, or do you think he's more in the Roger Stone Anthony Weiner camp of like let's be careful here not to get us further entrenched in kind of a, a wider regional war? I, I think he's very proud of the fact that there not only were there no new wars started during his four years, but he successfully brought back hundreds of thousands of troops without the countries that he was extracting them from collapsing behind them into the hands of our enemies. So I, I think he's uh, not. Uh, I think he's a uh, not an isolationist, certainly, but more of a non-interventionist. Uh, I don't. He most definitely not in the. Lindsey Graham, Nikki Haley school of bomb first and ask questions later. Yeah. Was that, by the way, why he released 1,500 Taliban terrorists in, in, in preparation for leaving Afghanistan? Uh, unfamiliar with that, so I can't Yeah, it's, it's, it's part of that disastrous plan that his administration, he was in such a race to get out of, out of Afghanistan, something that everyone wanted. That he set up a, a dynamic where he released 1,500 Taliban fighters on his way out the door, which but was he outrageous. Did, but he did not cost the lives of 13 Americans and leave billions of dollars of sophisticated military equipment. We do have drone technology that could have been used to pin the Taliban down so they didn't take control. But those uh, those activities stopped as soon as Joe Biden became president. Uh, well, actually, what wound up happening was those 1500 Taliban that were released by Donald Trump on this promise they were going to be good boys. We got nothing in return for it. They promised they were going to be friends of ours. And sure enough, those 1500 Taliban soldiers are probably at least partially responsible for our loss of life. Well, let's talk about another region of the world. And this one is in, is in the news, obviously, for a rather peculiar reason. We've got the, the, uh, the, the war between um, uh, uh, Russia in, in Ukraine. Tell me, who, who's, whose side are you on in that conflict? Well, let me ask you a question. Sure. Do, you think, do you think the war is going well for the Ukrainians? I believe they're holding on way longer than I thought, way longer than a lot of people thought. But I know I, I, I don't think that they can. They are our proxy army. They're the proxy army of people who are on our side. They're fighting a proxy war for us. Thank God we don't have American troops there and we should definitely support them. But I don't think they can survive without without our help. I think the problem here is that you and I probably have a fundamental disagreement about, about what the war is about. We signed the Buddhist Pest Memorandum when the Russians agreed to unite East and West Germany. We signed an agreement under this, this was under President George Bush, Secretary of State Jim Baker at the time, in which we agreed not only not to push uh, Ukraine into NATO, but also not to put missiles on the ground pointed at, at Russia. I think that's what this conflict is really about. Uh, this idea that Putin wants to take Ukraine and then he wants to take Poland and Germany. Nikki Haley keeps saying that. I can't find any place that Putin has said that. So I'll tell you what, I'm, I'm not on either side. I'm, I'm against more death and more war. Uh, and I'm afraid this, yet again, has the potential to lope into World War III. Well, I got to tell you, if you're China, which I think both of us agree are kind of rivals of ours, maybe not enemies, but at least rivals, and they're thinking about going into Taiwan, they're watching very carefully to see if we turn our back on our allies, whether we allow international borders to be voided at the drop of a hat. I do believe that we have a national interest here. And the national interest of countries not going into their neighbors and killing people is in the United States' interest. If you if you want to if you want to have me answer the question, we are on Ukraine's side here. It's not even a close call. We are not on Putin's side. And the problem is that when you listen to Donald Trump talk and you listen to some of his supporters talk, it almost sounds like they're rooting for Putin. And no no rhyme intended. 
Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm familiar with that slur. It's just, as someone who had his own relatives mowed down by Russian tanks in Budapest in 1956, I have no time for the Russians or for Vladimir Putin, who's a vicious murderer and a dictator. He's a guy who outlaws all political parties other than his, kind of like Zelensky, who postponed the next elections, kind of like Zelensky, uh, who elects, who arrests, uh, 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 journalists, uh, closes TV stations, newspapers, uh, uh, shut down the biggest church in the country. Uh, that's Ukraine. So let, let's not pretend this is about democracy. No, no, not. no. I'm pretending it's about U.S. interest. And you seem to be in pl saying with that both sides stuff that they're both not in our interest. No, no, no. Ukraine, the, the success of Russia, if Russia is able to execute what they have done, which is basically go into a rival country take it over and now be on the border of NATO, that's not in U.S. interest. I don't think that's an extravagant a, a sentence to say. I think it, it's pretty obvious. It's not in U.S. interest to continue to push the Ukrainians to mount Western missiles when we have specifically agreed with the Russians not to do that. Well, it's it, right now, that was, that was history. Today, we have, we have Russia in a neighboring country. Today. Is it in our interest? I ask you, Roger Stone, representing the right. Is it in our interest that the Ukrainians repel them? Uh, it's in it's in Ukraine's interest. On the other hand, I can't really uh, legitimize sending him another sixty two billion. I think it was in this border deal. First of all, when I read that forty million just got heisted by some of those uh, in the in the Ukrainian military, uh, and then secondarily, uh, when we have homeless veterans in this country, so I guess my view here is uh, I'd rather see us put America first. Two hundred fifty million dollars, billion dollars, pardon me, is a lot of money and. I don't think they're winning, to be honest with you. Well, I tell you, they're certainly not going to win without our continued help. And I got to tell you, this is, you know, when everyone says we don't want to put our boots on the ground, we have global rivals in Russia, global rivals in China. And that's really it. And if we allow those global rivals to basically do whatever they want and say, ah, we're going to bail out, we're going to, we're going to apologize for them, we're not going to stand up for, for people who are standing up. For those borders, then I think we're in big trouble. So let's wrap up here. Roger Stone, I really do want to thank you representing the right. For those of you who want to catch up with everything that Roger does, um, the Stone Zone, not the Stone Zone, StoneZone.com. Also, you can get his program. Tune in tomorrow from 4 to 6. Do you have anyone special uh, scheduled for tomorrow? Uh, actually, uh, presidential impeachment uh, lawyer David Schoen joins me to talk about the two issues we talked about today, the question of immunity and also the question about ballot access in the Colorado case. Uh, and then uh, Joel Gilbert uh, joins me. He's written a book about whether... Joe Biden will really be the nominee or whether we're perhaps looking at the draft of Michelle Obama, who I think would be an extraordinarily formidable candidate. Well, let's just leave that as a tease maybe for a future program. So this is the left versus right. We'll be back next week. I can't say who will be the uh, participants, but I want to thank Roger Stone for representing the right. I'm Anthony Weiner from the left. Thank you so much for tuning in to left versus right. And if you miss any part of the show, check it out on the Red Apple Podcast Network. Take care now.